Hello, I'm Matt Bricky, and welcome to another episode of Cloud Currents. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Tim Crawford, CIO of Strategic Advisor for Avoa. Tim, thank you for joining me today. Hey, Matt. Great to chat with you and looking forward to the uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah. Before we jump into the conversation, would you mind providing the audience a, you know, a few minutes on uh, your background and yourself? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, so, former CIO, I've worked uh, mostly in enterprise, large enterprise, uh, but of late have kind of stepped away and worked more as a CIO at large, working with both vendors and end users, um, really seeing that intersection between business and technology um, and talking about the pragmatic but also reality of um, where people sit uh, and adding a little provocativeness uh, to the conversation too, because I think it's good to, to kind of look out there a ways, but let's be realistic about where we are today. Um, so I'm having a lot of fun doing this, uh, taking the skills and things that I've learned and people that I've met along the way and being able to put that together into something that, that I'm finding that uh, both uh, vendors as well as uh, end users are finding valuable. Yeah, great. So, you know, looking through your history, you you've had a number of different kind of job titles, and you've have you been in a number of different industries, right, from semiconductors to academia. Um, why don't you give this give us a little bit of a idea on all those various various experiences, how that kind of changed your your lens and how you approach that today? Yeah, that you know, it's a great question because I think quite often we talk about how someone has a background in a specific industry. You know, they might've spent 10, 15 years or so in semiconductors or in healthcare or financial services. And frankly, I mean, growing up, going across a number of different industries, it was challenging because people were looking for that. But as time has gone on, people have realized that there's actually value in the variety that comes from taking things from one industry and being able to apply it to yet another. And that's something that I've done over the course of my career is I'll learn about something in one industry, but I'll find ways that it becomes valuable and unique and differentiating for a different industry. And so that differentiation becomes something that is unique and valuable to those companies. And I would encourage other folks to look for those opportunities too. Um, but it's been a great ride. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, working in semiconductors, I started my uh, education in electronic engineering and then eventually switched over to um, working more with computers and, and then eventually got my MBA. And so high tech and, and semiconductor manufacturing was a natural extension of that. But as you've mentioned, I've had the opportunity to work for some just wonderful people and just incredible organizations from National Semiconductor to Stanford University. You mentioned switching from, you know, engineer and engineering focus to more of an IT leader focus. What was it that kind of, you know, sparked your interest uh, at the beginning and probably more interesting is what kept you in it for as long as you've been in it? You know, it's actually been IT that's been the most interesting throughout the course of my career. Um, it is that intersection between business and technology. It's it's using technology in a way that, that really kind of provides value to customers, to companies, um, to how they operate, how they can work more efficiently, but how they can also grow their businesses. And that really is kind of the heart of what IT is about. It's not as much about just the building of a technology, um, not to minimize that because there's a lot of value and opportunity there, 
But for me personally, it's been about that intersection in business and technology. And I think that's really where IT strives. Is that kind of why you started your own your own firm, Avoa? Yeah, you know, stepping into uh, this realm that I'm in today was actually not planned. Um, so <laughs> I was actually looking for my next leadership role. And I wasn't finding anything, frankly, that was getting me excited. I mean, growing up in Silicon Valley, you tend to be a pretty forward thinker. You're thinking about ways that you can do things differently or, you know, recreating the wheel in a, in a more interesting way that's incredibly more valuable. Um, and so stepping out and looking for my next leadership role, I was finding a lot of uh, more traditional uh, searches that were happening for CIOs and IT leaders. And that just wasn't appealing to me. And so at the same time, I had peers that were reaching out to me, other CIOs that were saying, hey, can you help me with this project or that project? Look over my shoulder, um, give me some perspective. You get to see a lot of things I don't have access to, um, not just across industries, but then also across vendors and across geographies. And so one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I've got this book of business built where I'm advising end users. And then that naturally progressed into vendors that were also interested in getting some of that CIO goodness. And of course, they had customer advisory boards and, and advisory boards um, that weren't customers that were helping, them, helping guide them. But they really wanted the, to bring that CIO perspective to the table in the conversations. And so they started bringing me in as an analyst uh, as an industry analyst to provide some of that perspective. And so that's essentially how Avoa came about was that I was looking for a way to apply my background and skills in the best way I could uh, to benefit an organization or organizations in the best way I could. And it had a natural progression into what I've built now as a successful business that works with some of the top brands uh, around the globe in both enterprise software, hardware services, as well as end users. So that's pretty cool. You, you mentioned something during that answer that some of these opportunities weren't that interesting to you and all that. Do, do you think that organizations have transformed uh, the way that they look for CIOs to be more of a, like you said, you, a lot more experience, varied experience in different industries and all that? Or do you still find that organizations say, oh, I want someone that's a healthcare CIO. Yeah. So both, um, you will still find a number of industries. And I think there's a general generational component that, that has to be factored into this too. And I think over time we'll see that change as we see, um, leaders change, but, um, there are definitely some organizations that are like, you know, if, if I'm a healthcare organization, I'm looking for someone that has healthcare experience. And there are some good reasons for that. Um, and then you have other healthcare organizations that are saying, absolutely not. We want to, we want the search to be looking for someone outside of healthcare because we don't want to do the same thing as our competitors are doing. We want to look at other ways we can bring uh, expertise into the fold and kind of mix things up a bit. Um, that is changing over time. It's a slow process though, because you have to change a number of different factors to make that play out. The culture of the organization, the IT organization has to change. The culture of the broader company has to change. 
the expectations that you have of the IT leader that the CEO or, or CFO or COO might have of the IT leader and how the organization looks at IT more broadly um, has to evolve too. You can't just look at it as this is, a, this is an organization that works the same way as it did 10 years ago or even five years ago. I mean, I have uh, been recently talking about how what you learned as an IT leader 10 years ago need not apply today because the way that we build, organize, and lead IT organizations and the role of technology within business today is dramatically different than even a short five years ago, pre-pandemic. Um, so we have to be able to shift, but that shifting takes time. It takes time to do that. Um, and so once we, once we start seeing kind of a, a crossover of more folks that are interested in that and less focus on kind of the traditional ways of doing things, I think that'll pull the others along because it'll just be a necessity for them to survive. Do you see organizations changing the way that they um, include the CIO more today? So my, I guess let me rephrase that. I'd say, do you see that organizations give the CIO a seat at the boardroom uh, more so today than they did five years ago? On the surface, yes. Um, however, the reasons why are varied greatly, meaning you have to have the right CIO first and foremost. So if you don't have the right CIO, the right individual that's leading the IT organization with the right demeanor, with the right tone and cadence, they're never going to see the inside of a boardroom. The second piece to that is they have to have the right executive relationships and they have to have positive relationships with those executives. One of the most important of those relationships is between the CIO and the CEO, because when you you're wanting to get in the boardroom as a CIO, your doorway in is through either the CFO or the CEO. And if you don't have a good relationship with the CEO, it's going to be pretty hard to get into the boardroom, let alone be asked to present, be invited to present, or even be invited to come back. And so that's true with just being part of the, the uh, executive leadership team, the ELT within the organization, as much as it is uh, in the boardroom. So overall, it is changing. But again, there are multiple factors that have to be taken into account from the individual how IT is, is viewed within the company, the role of technology within the company. Is that the CIO's role or is that the CDO or CTO and their organization? Where does the CISO play a role in this? Um, that's one that you absolutely cannot ignore. But I've seen the gamut. And this is one of the things that uh, has been really interesting about the, the work I do today versus uh, working as an operational CIO for one organization is I get to see the gamut of what works, what doesn't work, how organizations are shifting and evolving. And I've seen the spectrum of publicly traded companies where CIOs have an engagement with their board and they present regularly. And I've also seen where CIOs have absolutely no interactions with their board and neither does their CISO in some cases. And so you do see that that exchange happen or that spectrum happen, um, but that exchange has to evolve. I think over time, we have to see more engagement between the CIO and the CEO and the rest of the ELT, but then also with the board. But again, it's not an entitlement. 
it's not an entitlement. It needs to be done in the right way. And that requires the right individual with the right persona and with the right relationships. So you, your, you yourself hosts a number of podcasts where you interview CIOs, CTOs, CISOs. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of like how, you know, those interviews help you with, uh, with the, you know, your career now? Yeah. You know, I've had some amazing relationships over the years and I was just with a group of CIOs a couple months ago. And, uh, one of the things that I realized is there were a few folks in the room that I've known over 30 years, which just kind of floors you when, uh, <laughs> when you've kind of gone it through the fast. course of your career, it <laughs> does, it does. And I'm having a great time, but, um, in the conversations that I have with both the CIO and the no and the CXO and the no podcasts, um, a lot of those interviews that I do are with people that I've known for a long time. I mean, I'm grateful for the relationships I have with other CIOs and the, the side conversations we can have about family and what's going on in life and then the challenges that we're having to deal with from a leadership standpoint. But one of the things that, um, that it has done is it's really opened my eyes to different ways that CIOs think beyond just the actions that they take. And I often talk about this in the context of there's the private conversation and there's the public conversation and never shall the private conversation see the light of day, at least not where it says, Hey, you know, Matt from this company said this, but rather there's a generalization, uh, that can be made, which maybe should see the light of day. Um, and I've been able to learn from all of these people. I feel like I'm a sponge in a lot of ways that, you know, just got out of college and I'm, I'm just learning about this thing called IT. Um, and I've always had that curiosity. And so this just fuels that intellectual stimulation of really trying to understand how people think differently. And going back to, to what I was saying earlier about applying different things from different um, industries, this is just more of the same. You know, you take something from financial services that a CIO said, and you're able to bring that into the conversation with someone that's uh, working for a major airline. And so I think those are great opportunities. And, and the podcast is just an extension of that. I mean, the, if I could take a minute, the, the whole reason for the podcast, it's, it's really a labor of love. It's not a, the CIO in the know is not a sponsored podcast. And it was really intended to elevate CIO conversations so others could get insights and actually hear how CIOs talk um, because it is one of the more quiet or private types of conversations that happen within the organization. And not many people have, um, have the ability or are privy to those, those conversations. And so that was really the genesis behind the podcast was to say, there's some of these conversations we should have more publicly and let me be the vehicle to, to be able to do that. And that's really where the CIO and the note came about. Yeah, that's cool. It, 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 sharing the variety of uh, everyone's thoughts and, and concerns and all of that. And uh, so let me transition that in, you know, we're, we're in a market of buzzword bingo. So cloud digital transformation, AI, ML, all that sort of stuff, right? There's a lot being thrown at the CIO, CTO uh, role. 
So when you're advising your clients, what what would you say are the core pillars that you look for when you're trying to help them determine an effective strategy? So number one is understand what your objectives are. And the objectives are not specifically for IT, but the objectives for the company. These are the objectives that are conversations at a board level, at an ELT level, but you need to understand those pretty intimately. And then you need to understand where technology fits into it because ultimately your organization is there to serve the org- the broader organization and ultimately customers. If it's not for the customers, why are we doing this? Um, and so it's important to, to understand that, but it kind of falls within three core pillars. I call it the big three. The first one is customer experience. And so customer experience ranges everything from how you engage with customers at the very beginning of the relationship, meaning before they even uh, call you up and say, or walk into a store and say, hey, I'm interested in your product. What do they know about your brand? What do they know about your company? What have they heard from friends and colleagues? To the other end of the spectrum, which is after they are no longer a customer and they're more of an alumni, what are they saying about your company? Are they, do they still have a good perspective on your company? And some might say, well, wait a second, if you're an alumni, you're probably not going to be referring folks. Well, that's not true. Think about um, life cycles, customer life cycles that do have a finite end. Good example of this, children. As the children grow up, guess what? I'm not buying diapers anymore for children, but I still might have a really good perspective on a particular brand of diapers. Okay, well, I'm not... not using it for my kids anymore. They're, they're fully grown. Um, and so it's important to understand that whole spectrum and that journey that customers go through. And there are a lot of loops with it too, right? That they, they kind of cycle through. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is the employee experience. And again, it has uh, a very early start and an end that sits off as an alumni. And so it's important to understand that whole journey and understand the people as people, not just resources, um, but it's important to understand that these are human beings and each human is unique and complicated. And so that's the second pillar. And then the third pillar is your business operations or supply chain in some cases. And so that business operations piece is what connects the customer journey and the employee journey together. And that's the engine that works everything together. So it's important to understand how your company makes money, how it spends money, and everything that goes through it. And so as the CIO, that's a tall order. But for everyone on the ELT, you need to understand those three core components at a fundamental level, and then understand how your particular area of the organization fits in with it. And so for the CIO, my advice is understand those three, and then understand where technology fits in, and then you can go from there as to where you need to go a little deeper. So, Tim, what's your advice for a CIO that gets this type of experience from their their ELT? We need to go to public cloud because we're behind, right? We've we've seen a number of those at our company that there's not necessarily a solid reason that they're doing it. There's not necessarily a business objective. They there's some lightweight kind of uh, objectives that we, you know, we don't, we're not in the data center business. We shouldn't be in the data center business. We shouldn't do, we shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't is usually a lot of those things, but there's not a ter- terribly compelling reason 
to be doing what they're doing. So how, how would you advise a CIO to either push back on that or modify that view if, if they encounter something like that? You know, you're always going to encounter um, different perspectives and, and different interpretations of what those objectives are. And so this is where you really have to lean on the relationships you have with other members of the ELT and ensure that there's alignment between those folks. And that really becomes the guidance to help understand how you're going to work through those challenges where you, Matt, might see things one way and I see it completely different. And how do we work through it? How do we ensure that that ties up appropriately to the the overall objective that we're both supposed to be there kind of fighting for, you know, driving toward. And so when I find that it ties back to those objectives, it's a much smoother process. What I find is where um, when you run into those situations where uh, folks are heading down a path that you just kind of scratch your head and go, why are they going here? I mean, first off, ask your question and understand, you know, it's, it's the old seek to understand first. Um, understand why they're doing it because maybe there is a good solid reason that you're just not aware of. But let's say for instance, they're heading down the path of they're continuing to support a data center and you're like, why, why are we still doing this? Like this is the age of the cloud. Like, and I'm not suggesting that all roads end with cloud because it doesn't, there's still a need for a corporate data center. So let's be clear about that. But there are some that believe that maybe cloud has kind of overplayed its hand and, you know, everything should be back in the corporate data center, which I don't agree with either. And so it's important to understand what the motivations are and what the education is in terms of how knowledgeable are they of the issues. So, for example, I've seen a number of situations where applications are moving back on-prem. Uh, and in talking to the IT leaders, not just the CIO, but maybe CIO minus one, a lot of the reasons that they give don't have a lot of foundation to it in most cases. And so when you start to get them to dig a little further, it really kind of opens their eyes to things that they just, they didn't know, they weren't aware of. And so then it becomes more helpful to understand and make better business decisions of choices they make around technology and directions in technology. You're always going to find some folks that will say, hey, we're going to continue to do this because this is the way we've always done it. We've done it for 20 years or so. We're going to continue doing it for another 20 years. And that's a fatal flaw because when you look at it, business has changed. Customers have changed. Technology needs to change as well to be able to support that. And while there still may be corner cases where doing things the same way might be the right way to do it, um, you have to be real careful that you don't end up in a rut and down a path that ends up at a cliff before you know it. And so that's one of the things that I always educate folks on is, do you know where this path is going to take you? And at what point is it time to change the tracks to a different path? Um, and so having that conversation sometimes opens people up to think about things in a different way. Um, but yeah, you there's always going to be those situations where you've got someone that is steadfast and quite frankly, I mean, there, there's a bit of a generational, uh, concern here. Uh, and there, I've heard other reasons why to, uh, whether it's I'm close to retirement, I don't want to take on the risk. Uh, I've also heard, uh, situations where I'm concerned about my staff. They're all kind of focused on this one technology. If we move to another technology, they're going to be out of a job. Um, there are ways to address 
all of these issues that I've found over the, the course of my career, you just have to put in the work to be able to figure that out. So get, get, that's a very good transition into my next kind of thought was that you mentioned generational and, you know, if you go through the generations, everyone has different needs for soft skills. You know, if you, you there's jokes that boomers have none and, and millennials need, every, need it constantly given to them. Um, but when you've worked with, you know, your, your clients, what are the soft skills that you think have been the most valuable to them? Yeah. And, you know, to be clear, it is not a, a steadfast or hard and fast, you know, generational is the answer. Um, meaning I know boomers that I work with that they're awesome and they are most definitely very forward thinking. And I know millennials that they're steadfast in their ways and, you know, it's going to be hard to, to get them to change. So I, d I want to be clear that I'm not necessarily putting people into a bucket, but rather it's more about the traits that uh, different folks kind of exhibit. At the end of the day, the most important thing is what are the soft skills that they've learned as they've kind of grown up as a human being? You know, have they grown up to learn about things like imagination, curiosity? I mean, one of the things I would always interview for is what is it that you're curious about? Like what motivates you? What are you spending your free time doing? What are you tinkering with? Um, because those are traits that I can't teach you as a leader very easily. I can teach you the hard skills, no problem. I can send you the class. I can, I can have you sit with someone else and learn the hard skills. That's relatively easy to do. But those soft skills, those problem solving skills, those are the ones that are incredibly valuable. And if I could go a step further on the problem solving, technology is an imperfect thing. As much as people expect technology to be perfect, whether it's on-prem technology, which guess what? Data centers fail, surprise. Um, cloud fails, surprise. Technology is imperfect. And so you have to understand and respect that. What we are gauged on though, as leaders and as individual contributors is how we react and how we plan and how we recover and respond when things do go wrong. And so it's important to have those kinds of skills, those kinds of soft skills. How do you solve for problems and give someone a problem they haven't seen before? What's the process they would go through, that thought process that they would go through to try and figure it out? And so those are things that I think are incredibly valuable. You know, imagination is another thing. You know, if you go back Oh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. But if you go back several decades, there was a lot more imagination that was happening within the average IT organization than there is today. Um, today, it's running from one project to the next. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks listening to this are going, wow, yeah, I just just finished one project and I'm on to the next and I'm on to the next project and I'm on to the next project. And you just don't get time to think, to stop and think. And so that's one thing that um, I think very strongly that we need to infuse back into our organizations is time to think. And that's really hard to do if you don't have the right relationships, you don't have the right culture in the organization, is giving people time to explore, to experiment, to think, and giving them a safe space to do that in. If you're just expecting people to perform 24 seven, and perform perfectly, you're setting yourself up for failure. 
And so these are the kinds of soft skills that I would encourage folks to be thinking about is how can you contribute in your own way, whether you're the CIO of a large organization or you're the most junior individual contributor equally, you can figure out what are those soft skills? How can I kind of sharpen those skills and bring them to the table and really provide value based on those? And to me, those are incredibly powerful and incredibly valuable. The other hard skills, you know, if you see a job description and it goes, you know, I'm looking for these five things and you've only got three of them, still apply. Because if you've got the right soft skills, I can teach the hard stuff. That's a good answer. So, Tim, I think I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk more technology now than necessarily technology leaders. And we'll start with cloud, kind of cloud adoption, and we'll, I'll naturally take you probably into artificial intelligence there. But my first question is, uh, you know, we've seen in 2020, late, I'd say late 2022, all throughout this year, anyone in public cloud is talking cost containment. Right. So can you give us a little bit of insight on, you know, why you think that has emerged into such a popular trend and what what should clients be thinking about that haven't adopted a new cloud to make sure they don't make the same mistakes as maybe some of their, you know, some, some prior organizations have? Yeah, it's, you know, the last 12, 14 months, um, there has been an intense focus on this. Uh, around cost containment with regards to cloud computing. Um, it's been kind of bubbling up for a couple of years prior to that, but the macroeconomic conditions have really kind of forced folks to say, wait a second here, what are we spending the most money on and how do we start to kind of pull that in? Now, one of the things I will say is I think too often people get wrapped around the axle on how do we reduce our costs with when it comes to talking about cloud? And I think that's absolutely the wrong conversation to have because it, it focuses on a finite number as opposed to focusing on a ratio, which is value. So for example, if you're spending a million dollars a month uh, with a public cloud provider and someone comes to you, and I've heard this from CIOs um, across the board, is how do I start to reduce that million dollars a month to maybe even 800000 a month? And my argument is that is not the question to be asking. Your question you should be asking is, what am I getting for that million dollars a month? So for example, if that million dollars a month is tied to $5 million in top-line revenue, which then ostensibly turns into some some um, subset of that in terms of the bottom line uh, contribution, then your question should be, how do I grow it? How do I grow my spend? Because maybe there is something close to a linear progression between how much I'm spending with that particular cloud service and the revenue that's coming from it. So instead of reducing the million dollars a month, how do I increase it? And can I prove that by increasing it, and this is a question all of you should be asking, can I prove that that million dollars a month truly is contributing $5 million in top line? And so if the answer is yes, and then I can project that out and model it to be able to say, well, if we multiply it by 10, then I'm spending $10 million a month and I'm getting $50 million in top line. And we can, we can model that, and that's how the model plays out, even if it's $40 million. I mean, that's still a 4X turn on investment to top line. That's still really good. 
and then look at your bottom line contribution as a consequence of that. Those are the kinds of financial conversations we should be having around cost containment is where's the value, not what's the most costly, where's the value. And for things that aren't providing the value to the organization, those are the ones that we should be targeting and, and reducing our spend on. But it's more focus on value over cost. Um, and then of course we've we've had this conversation around FinOps uh, that's come up, which is, I think, a more sophisticated way of saying, okay, this is really portfolio management and budgeting, let's be honest. Um, for most organizations, that's really what it comes down to, is understanding, understanding your spend, understanding what you're getting for it, and understanding how that's trending. And from a, an actuals perspective against a budget, I mean, this is something that you should have been doing for decades. This is not something that should be new. But financial management has been a challenge for a lot of IT organizations prior to cloud. And once we moved into the cloud era, it became even more complicated. And one of the things that, that makes it even more challenging is when you start getting into public cloud services, it's even more challenging because it's not clear what services tie to what potential outcomes. And so all of the cloud providers, public cloud providers are trying to put together tools to help with that. But there is no one tool today that says for a given application, no matter how much you tag a given application or services rather within a public cloud provider, there is no way today to clearly articulate that a given service, meaning top line service that the customer is engaging with is tied to very specific costs. There's no way to do that today. And so there's a lot of funny math that we have to do assumptions we have to do to, to kind of work through that. I think where this is going to get more complicated in the, the near term, and especially in this coming year is when we start talking about the impact of sustainability into the mix. Because now when you start getting into things like artificial intelligence and generative AI and the amount of power and the carbon footprint that it creates, which nobody's really talking about yet, but they're going to be because it's either going to be driven by customers that are going to require understanding that information, or it's going to be forced through regulatory bodies. And we're already starting to see the, the inklings of that. Um, yet I will say most IT organizations are going to get caught flat footed with it because they're not, they're not thinking about it generally, and they're not, they're definitely not prepared. And, and frankly, the vendors are struggling with it too. They're working hard, but this is a complicated problem. This is a really complicated problem. So add that to the, the mix of everything else we have to do. Um, <laughs> it just, it reeks to a uh, mindset that I often talk about, which is you have to drive to simplification. You have to make your environment as simple as possible because the simpler you make it, the easier it is to solve for these problems. The harder you make it, the more complicated you leave things because it's always, IT's always been complicated. The harder it's going to be to get your arms around this stuff. I would imagine that plays very well into kind of the other theme that we've seen throughout 2023 and it's not just public cloud but the the need for stricter governance and a clearer security policy has been a very very popular trend in, in our clients 
so I would assume the same with you, but if it, if it's not, tell me. But have you seen where have you seen clients misstep around security and governance with regards to their you know their cloud maturity? So number one is they assume that the cloud is just like their data center, and so they put the same protections and methodologies in place. They're not thinking about it as an ephemeral resource that is incredibly flexible and can come and go. Um, and it's the whole spectrum from the tools that are used, the methods that are used, the processes that are used, uh, auditing that comes into play, just the mindset of the individuals that are putting it in place. They're, they're using traditional methods to apply to cloud. And I think that's the first mistake is they're not stopping and saying, hold on, this is something brand new. Let's think differently about how we manage this. Um, the other problem is I see a lot of groups that are focused on solving for one specific security problem, and they're not thinking about it holistically. So for example, how do I manage an application and all of the data and all of the analytics that go with it from the edge to the cloud? So from those sensors all the way at the edge and those input-output devices, all the way through the entire spectrum, all the way back to public cloud and everything and all the services that are involved in it. That's not being considered. Um, if it were, we'd be have, seeing a wholly different conversation coming up. But instead, what we're seeing are these incremental improvements. And you know, the question I often get is, are we spending too much already on security or are we spending too little? Like if we spend another million dollars a year on security, what's that going to get us? Is it going to have a, a market improvement in our uh, profile and our, in our risk profile? And the answer in a lot of times is no, it's not. Um, you have to kind of step back and, and rethink the problem. And so I think this is, this is something that, that we're going to see coming up. You mentioned regulatory, and I am not a big fan of regulatory when it comes to technology, um, because I think technology moves at such a fast pace that regulatory bodies just can't keep up. I mean, the process is just too cumbersome and too slow for it. And we've seen a number of examples of where regulatory bodies that are largely uninformed when it comes to these technologies, meaning they just don't understand the nuances of it. They're not experts in the space, even though they have access to some pretty brilliant folks to educate them. At the end of the day, they're not experts in the space. And so they try and take these broad strokes to protect data. And inevitably, what we're finding is that they will end up looping in a bunch of things that they didn't intend to loop into it. And so you have these unintended consequences that start to hinder things like innovation and protection and whatnot. And so um, I do think that we have to be real careful about where regulation goes into play. At the, on the other hand, I would say that no regulation is not an option either, but we ha I think we've kind of over-rotated on that a little too much. Um, and I'll give you a good example of this. When you have a breach, you know, one of the things that is often a question that comes up is, was the breach material? And for those of us that have played in that world and understand what mat what materiality means, it's pretty clear when something is material or not. But here's the reality. When you first identify a breach, 
it may not be material when you first identify it. But as you start to look through your investigation and go through the process of trying to determine, okay, so how wide was the breach? What was impacted? You might be several days down the path of this really intense work of trying to determine the scope of it, only to learn several days later that, okay, yes, it was material. It's crossed the threshold because initially it did not include enough um, enough of an impact to consider it to be uh, materially impactful. But as you go through the investigation, then you do determine that. The problem is that when you look at the the uh, legislation that's and the regulatory requirements that are on the books, there's not a lot of guidance there on it. Now, some of it says when you determine that it's material, but I'd like to see how that plays out in the court of law. Um, because one could then argue, well, maybe you should have known that it was material day one. And in reality, uh, you may not know that. And so I think there, these are great examples of where things get a little fuzzy and we have to give people a little bit of time and give them a little bit of grace to understand what is it that they're dealing with and what is being impacted and then take the right actions. Now, if you're dumb and you make stupid decisions, then yeah, you should be held accountable for that. But if you're doing the right thing and doing the right thing on behalf of your customers and your, your stakeholders, your investors, your shareholders, then great. All the more power to you. And if that takes you a few more days to figure it out, take the few more days to figure it out. But this is where I think you have to be real careful about how these regulatory bodies kind of get their fingers into these decisions because again technology is not perfect and the way that these different situations play out they're not unique or i'm sorry they're not common they're very unique in the way that each one plays out and so i think that's one thing that we have to think about as we um, cautiously go down this path uh, speaking of cautiously going down a path <laughs> let's transition into into a couple uh, questions around AI, and Can you spell I, I want to focus not so much on. <laughs> I want to focus not so much on the technology itself, but more the CIO lens of it. So I'm going to ask you a question, kind of a scenario. Um, if you're on any any of the news sites, right, the the amount of new companies and new products that are coming out that utilize some version of AI. You get a picture, you you, trans, you, you, know, you ups, upscale your picture, you can make a movie, you can do uh, all kinds of things that at work, it can create presentations for you. You know, it can do a lot of things for your user community. That How does the CIO look at that from a standpoint of not controlling it, but making sure that their environment stays safe and that they're not, you know, they have trustworthy vendors that they're using with those AI tools. Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated answer. And again, I've seen the gamut of CIOs that want to control. And I use that, that term, that word very, very carefully because, you know, in the early days of IT, early days of my career back late eighties into the nineties, um, command and control was the way that you ran an IT organization. You would never do that today. Um, and so, but unfortunately there are still some that believe that is the way to, to run technology. And so when you look at these new innovative technologies like AI, uh, it comes back to how do we control it? 
how do we make sure that our users can't do certain things? Um, in some cases, I've seen where organizations will block all .ai domains. Um, in other cases, you'll see uh, companies that will block access to things like ChatGPT and BARD. Um, those are not the answer. We have to get more sophisticated with it to understand what are the right guardrails to put up so that we can encourage people to experiment with these new innovations, but at the same time, help them be successful and, and protect them from um, doing things maybe they shouldn't. You know, like for example, taking protected data, um, let's say regulatory data, and serving it into ChatGPT to write a press release of um, an announcement that is highly regulated, let's say financial data, um, that has not been publicly announced yet. Okay, that's, that's a problem. Um, but what I found was that those folks didn't understand how it worked, how the technology worked. And so it's a great example, and I wrote a blog post about this in more detail, but it's a great example of where a little more education would be helpful in helping these employees do the right thing on behalf of the company. A lot of times, it's the reason why they're doing what some might look at as the wrong thing is not because they're intentionally trying to harm the company. I mean, sure, there are those people that, that are intending to do that and they should be um, prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But the vast majority that I see, they're just trying to get their job done. They're just trying to find a better, better, easier, more effective way to do it and trying to do right by the company. The vast, vast majority of folks are trying to do that. And so I think the important thing there is find ways to educate them, find ways to put the right guardrails in place, um, but don't try and be overly controlling um, with this new technology. Do you, do you, do you foresee that, for this, again, staying with the CIO persona, that they're going to receive, I'll just say pressure from business leaders that why aren't we in AI? Very similar to a few years ago, why aren't we in cloud? Do you, are you experiencing that now with your, with your clients? Yeah, it's already happening, unfortunately. Um, you know, we saw the cloud edicts that came out, thou shall use cloud from boards. <laughs> so a board of directors is a governing body. It's, it's not an operational body. Right. That's what the ELT, that's what your executive leadership team is intending to do. It's the board of directors should be a governing body. And so when I started seeing that boards were, um, were putting out these specific edicts to use specific technology, I mean, that's, that's just a really bad situation on multiple levels. And we could have a whole podcast just talking about that and why. Um, but I am seeing a little bit of that with AI. Not nearly as much, and I don't think we will see as much because we've quickly gone through um, a cycle that cloud didn't have as quick of a time frame to go through. Meaning cloud took a little longer for us to understand the pros and cons before those edicts started coming about. A lot of the, the lighthouse companies that had started working with AI and specifically generative AI, that's what we're really talking about because AI has been around since what, the 60s? Um, and so we've been doing different forms of AI and machine learning for decades. 
But generative AI is really what um, is concerning and, and what people are talking about today for the most part. I'm not seeing as many edicts. I do see some that are coming out, but the good thing is we already have some of these lighthouse companies that went through the, the early exploration and realized that, yeah, there's some good things, but there are some risks here too. And we, we need to be really cautious about that. And that could involve, um, bringing more risk to the company. And you start putting that on the table with very concrete examples, like intellectual property leakage, uh, bringing outside intellectual property into your organization and using it, um, unauthor in an unauthorized way. Those are very simple examples that boards can understand. And the last thing they want to do is is put an edict out that that brings in risk without being able to quantify and understand that risk in more detail. So we have the benefit of that, which I think will will keep it from happening. Okay, good. Do you see most of your clients looking towards the cloud platforms to to you you know use the AI products and services they have, or do you see a more of a DIY approach? Yeah. So, you know, initially it was a DIY, let me use the building blocks and the tools. And when they did, they were using public cloud resources to do it, you know, from Amazon and Google and Microsoft. Um, however, as they've gone down that path, they very quickly realized that, holy cow, this requires a lot of specialization and a lot of expertise that my organization does not have, number one. Number two, if I tried to find those folks, those folks are hard to come by. And number three, if I can find those folks, they're bloody expensive. Um, and so I do think it's, uh, it's a situation where they very quickly understood that aside from the risks that I t alluded to a minute ago, um, there's also a reality of this is not a technology that we can easily consume uh, through building blocks. And at the same time, the enterprise software, hardware, and services companies were starting to figure out on their own, and they had the girth, the, the space, and, and number of customers to be able to um, amortize these expenses, but they were very quickly developing ways to put that technology into the existing products that these companies were already using. So the way that enterprises uh, are evolving the consumption of generative AI is moving very quickly from just consuming building blocks that run on public cloud to, in a large way, just consuming it through the existing tools and software and services that, that they get from their enterprise vendors. And that's, that's a good thing for a couple of reasons. One, it, it doesn't create as much of a constraint in the marketplace for the, the specialization of these individuals. Number two, each of these enterprises don't need that kind of horsepower in their organization for the most part. There are some exceptions to that. Um, and then number three is these companies already know how to put the right guardrails in place to ensure that data is being used in an appropriate way. So the individual company, the individual customer doesn't have to contend with that too because you know data leakage and IP leakage, not IP internet protocol, IP as an intellectual it property, yeah. um, becomes a real concern when you start getting into generative AI, both egress and ingress. And so having these enterprise software, hardware and services companies build that into their technology um, 
is actually a great thing because they have the expertise of how to do it in the right way. And I don't have to do that as a customer, which is good. Uh, Tim, a couple, couple more questions on the AI machine learning. It's, you know, it's called a hype cycle for a reason. Give me your opinion on, do you think that AI is going to drive the amount of business value that's, that's being hyped now, or do you think that's a little bit overblown? Uh, I actually think it's going to drive a considerable more uh, amount of business than, than what we're talking about today. I think it has, it has a lot of legs, a <laughs> um, lot more to go. We have definitely gone over the um, gone over the top of the hype cycle, and we're in what the trough of disillusionment. Um, there, we've definitely crossed that boundary probably about six months ago. Um, it came pretty early, went up the cycle and and back down pretty early because you had these lighthouse enterprise customers that were trying to use the building blocks and they got burned. And uh, they started to realize pretty quickly, whoa, we need to we need to be smarter about how we use this technology. Doesn't mean don't use it. Doesn't mean block it. It means we got to get smarter about how we do it. We got to think. We got to use that that brain power to to use it appropriately. And so we are in that climb out from that the low point and starting to to find real ways to take advantage of it. But I think as we go down that path, we're going to we're going to not just explore, but we're going to discover new ways to use this technology and new opportunities and new TAMs for these companies, expanded TAMs for these companies um, that we just didn't have access to in the past. And I think that in its own right creates opportunity all around for customers for stakeholders, for investors, for companies, for employees, for leaders, everybody wins. Um, we just have to be smart about how we go through it. Great. And so with that, you know, looking ahead, crystal ball kind of things, what, what are the innovations that have you the most excited for the next, you know, five, 10 years? AI is one, right? We've discussed it, but is there anything else that is, uh, is uh, you know piquing your interest in seeing uh, the same type of uh, innovative potential? You know, if we were having this conversation a short two years ago, I would have been able to articulate some things in that three to five year horizon. If we look at just the last twelve months and how far, how how wide reaching generative AI has come from and gone to, the actual speed has accelerated at such a pace that it's pretty hard to look three to five years out with any degree of accuracy today. Um, it's pretty surprising just based on what we've done with generative AI. I do think what uh, is really going to drive the opportunity is going back to something I was saying about people and soft skills is where's the imagination? Who has the imagination to think about new ways and new questions to ask and, and new opportunities and finding those kind of hot spots, uh, diving into engaging with customers in a more fruitful way, uh, improving your supply chain and doing more clever things, uh, in your supply chain, finding new ways to expand your employee base, kind of going back to my big three of employee experience, customer experience, business operations. When you start to 
to kind of delve into the data. And I think the real opportunities are going to come with data and analytics, um, not just generative AI, but analytics across the board. As you start to delve further into that, I think this just opens the door to a number of other opportunities. And then as we get more comfortable with it in the next, say, two to three years, because it's going to take some time to build up that trust, then we can start layering things like automation into the mix. And now it becomes really interesting because the speed in which we understand these insights and can react to them starts to improve, which then improves our business situation. But let me be clear, I'm not talking about artificial intelligence in the uh, in the pure form, which has a cognitive component where all of a sudden computers take over the world and the rest. That's quite a ways out. So, um, you know, we're okay for now. Uh, at that point, we might have to start questioning humanity and some of the decisions we make as, as humans. But uh, for the time being, I think there's a ton of opportunity to learn, to explore, to gain better insights. And it's going to come from everywhere from climate and sustainability to how we think about people, how we uh, build and improve upon cultures and economies and businesses and engage with customers and the value we create all around, um, the value of life. And so, yes, there's there's a ton of opportunity, but again, it comes back to who's got that creative gene and, and can think about it in your company's uh, domain as to how you can really kind of change lives. Think about healthcare and what we could do, um, you know, financial services. There's some amazing opportunities. And I think that's what we'll be exploring here in the next probably two to three years as we build up trust and find opportunities for automation. And then longer term, I think we get, we get more interesting stuff coming down the pike. I think then things like quantum and new ways to compute and new ways to leverage uh, this technology uh, start to come into focus more than it is today. Um, but I think that's probably five plus easily uh, years out. So Tim, final question, one, one I like, but if, if our audience forgot everything that you said, <laughs> except for one lesson, what would you like them to walk away with? There is a lot of opportunity to come in technology and for those working in technology today, but it requires you individually to think about where that comes from. Not someone to tell you, not someone like me, not someone like Matt, but for you to think about where that comes from and what you can contribute. And I would encourage folks to think about those soft skills Think about how you can be a better person and where technology can fit in and then explore. Great. Tim, thank you for the conversation. I really appreciated it. Um, that wraps up our, our this episode of Cloud Currents. Thanks for having me. 